Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Polari Live Online. My name is Paul Burston. I've been running Polari events since 2007. Tonight, I'm joined by three diverse writers whose work explores questions of identity, sexuality, mortality, and more. Sophia Blackwell is the author of three collections of poetry and a novel. Her short stories have been published in the collections Boys and Girls, Men and Women, and her poetry has been anthologized by Blood Axe, Nine Arches, and the Emma Press. Her latest poetry collection is The Other Woman. Selena Godden is a poet, author, activist, broadcaster, and memoirist and essayist. Her published books include volumes of poetry and a memoir, Springfield Road. Her debut novel is Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, described as an electrifying genre and form-defying firestarter. Polis Lewis, who writes for The Page, Stage and Screen, his first novel, Disbanded Kingdom, was long-listed for the Polari First Book Prize. His second novel, The Way It Breaks, will be published in June. In the show on May the 6th, you had three guests. You had two guests in, in the form of me and Selena Godden, who started out doing spoken word, along with various other things, and have also written prose. And you also had Polis, who's written short stories and, and a novel. We talked quite a lot about genre during the event, didn't we, and kind of what it was like to move from one to another and what the kind of gateways were between writing in a, a very specific style. And I think for... I, I know for me and possibly for Selena, performance poetry is not its own separate genre because neither of us believe in this sort of page versus stage thing, but you do have to do certain things in order to succeed at it, which make it quite different from writing quite modernist literary poetry. Yeah, I can, I can believe that, absolutely. I, th- I mean, one of the things I found really interesting from that conversation was when I asked Selena about, you know, having published volumes of poetry and memoir and then to write a novel, um, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death is her first novel. Um, and she said that she wasn't conscious of writing in a different form or genre. She, she basically writes the project and then, then, then it becomes whatever it becomes, which I'd never, I'd never even considered that possibility because that's not at all how I think as a writer. I'm very much more, because of my background in journalism, I'm much more way of form from the, from the very beginning. She was expressing the point of view that, that you know, you, 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 you can just be writing something. You, you, you just write something and then, and then it becomes what it becomes. And I think that's, that's a great way to be, to be and it, it gives you a freedom. It's a bit, it's a bit, I guess it's a bit like, you know, doing morning pages or something like this where, you, where, you're, where you're writing, you know, free, free writing and not thinking too much about where it's going. I think as a journalist, it's very difficult to get into that headspace when you're a journalist by, by, by background because everything you write is basically, you know how many words it's going to be, how much you're going to get paid, if you are going to get paid, um, when it's due for delivery, when it's due to be published. I mean, there's all, all this sort of business of writing that comes with journalism. And there's, there's, there's great luxury in not thinking like that and having the freedom to not think like that. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's something that all writers should try and find a way of achieving that that sense of being with their work. Some, for some of us, it's more difficult to get into that headspace, but I think it's worth working at it. 
Every writer's process is slightly different, and Paul and Selena started off the evening by talking about the differences and similarities between writing for poetry, prose, non-fiction and news. Selena also talked about her idiosyncratic approach to deadlines and how Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death came into being in the first place. How influenced were you as a poet, do you think, approaching a novel? I don't separate them in my head. I don't separate my writing in my head. I write, and then once it's on the page, I decide it tells me or I decide what I want it to be. And it occurred to me that when you see a poem on a page, you will take a breath, you will slow down. So some of the poems are chopped up newspaper article. They are fact. They are really horrible stories, real fact. But I've laid them on a page like a poem. So instead, because when you read a nasty news story of a terrible murder, you're reading fact, you're taking in these facts. But when you read it with short lines, beautiful on a page, you will just take it more more emotionally. Um, and so I wanted to play with that a lot. Um um, and so I, I did that a lot. So some things that started as prose turned into poems, things that started as poems turned into sort of rants or essay writing. Um, and it really occurred to me as well that we take in um, writing so so miraculously quickly nowadays. Um, we might see a news story in the morning on Twitter, okay? So we see it as a news story. By lunchtime, we're seeing it as a poem or we're hearing it as a song or a joke or a comedy or a meme. And then by the end of the day, it's a visual thing with a video. And, and so we're constantly seeing um, stories regurgitated and rehashed in different ways and in different form. Um, so it occurred to me that when Mrs. Death is hearing all the deaths in her head, that it wouldn't all be in prose form, that some would be coming poems or folk songs or laments or prayers. And, and I wanted to show that in, in the writing, this kind of this barrage of information that's coming to her, like a constant Twitter feed of different styles of writing. Often when, often when things feel like work, I'll do something else to take my mind. I like things to feel playful. So often when I've got a deadline for something, I'll go and randomly start working on something else, don't you? You know, it's like, oh, I've got an idea for a short story. And then the essay that's meant to be in tomorrow is screaming at me. You know, I think we I think we all do that as writers. I think of myself as a baker. I've got some things marinating. And I've got some things in the oven and I've got some things in the shop window. It's like I have a little bakery here. Like this is in the shop window, but there's all kinds of things marinating or, or things that can get taken out of the freezer and defrosted and have another, have another look at them and... Yeah, never throw anything away is, is the idea, isn't it? Just keep, because something might, that, that you couldn't finish once and then you go back to it and you're like, ah, with like a new fresh eye, you can sort of, you know, rework it. And, yeah, like sourdough, just keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> Another theme of lockdown. <laughs> so yeah. so is, is, is the novel more like a sort of family-sized loaf and, and a book of poetry is kind of, you know, <laughs> a collection of buns uh. <laughs> or bagels? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't think I'd let anyone read this because I, I just thought it was, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, this was something that I was working on sort of over the last decade. So it's while I was making the Livewire album and doing the Good Immigrant stuff and, and the Pessimism is for Lightweight stuff and all these other projects. And this was the thing I was working on secretly, you know, um, to avoid deadlines. <laughs> you know, this is kind of like my side, my side bitch, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, but I, I'm glad I'm glad she's now my main wife again. That leads us quite neatly back to Sophia and the other woman. Um, Sophia's been part of our little sort of alternative family for quite a while. I think going back to about 2010, if not 
even earlier. And you're currently in Newcastle visiting your parents. Can you tell us a bit about the most recent poetry collection? The Other Woman is very much about migrations. It's about being in a relationship where one of you is white and one of you is black. It's about marriage, um, because growing up gay, I never thought that marriage would be a thing I could legally do. So one of the kind of working titles for the book was um, The Country of Marriage, but it's already been used in a variety of things. And we got to thinking about, you know, the significance of, of the other woman and being the other woman in someone else's relationship or having another woman in your own. But yeah, really it is about marriage it's about settling down um, but also still continuing to explore the world becoming an aunt and a godmother for the first time watching my friends have kids and looking at the world around us basically and learning from it and growing so so that's really what the the new collection's about it's a clever title because obviously in sort of common parlance the other woman usually refers to a husband's bit on the side and also the sense of being othered that, you know, we have traditionally as LGBTQ plus people been othered. So you're kind of embracing all those different meanings in that title, aren't you? Pregnant with meaning. Pregnant with meaning, absolutely. And two of the poems are about deciding not to have kids as well. <laughs> These also about motherhood. Like, you know, if I were to write motherhood poems, they are actually in this book, despite not being a mum myself. And they're about the other children in, in my life. I know that you're a devoted uncle and uh, I'm a devoted aunt. So um, Aralia, my, my niece, makes it into the book too. So my first reading tonight will be all poetry and I'm going to start off with the the title poem. And in this case, the other woman is actually not, you know, somebody who your partner is having as a bit on the side. This is about the woman that women date after me, the other woman. She owns a fleece and knows the names of trees. She understands Bitcoin, blockchain and chess. Her male friends do not think of her that way. The other woman isn't much like me. The other woman gets from A to B. She chairs committees, tweets at companies. I send an emailed grievance privately. That other woman's really not like me. She studied at Life's University. She sees no need for fiction, hip-hop, lipstick. People don't find her threatening at parties. Your friends all say she suits you more than me. Your parents tolerate her grudgingly. You never stuffed her past in frayed bin bags that split and spilled. She owns some property. Well, you'll never have to look for her in me. You've got a ring now and a front door key. And me, I'm good. In fact, I'm moving closer towards the woman I'd have been without you, with everything you caged in me set free. Sometimes I wonder when she'll start to doubt you. And that's one thing she'll have to share with me. So I said I would do this poem for you, Paul. Um, you know how when you are you know, back in you know, your family life and you're surrounded by your parents, you kind of regress back to, to being a teenager. And so this poem is about mixtapes and about you know, the joys of making mixtapes for people I was trying to get off with as, as a teenager. But this is basically about the joys of creating those uh, tokens of, of love and uh, horniness at that age, basically. I miss them, don't you? Those long Sunday nights hanging over the arm of your parents' sofa, itchy fingers poised for the end of the track. You were an explorer, marching from front to back into that vacuum, that white noise hiss. You were a general, marshalling ranks of rock stars all in your quest to get that single kiss. 
The language of tapes was pure interpretation. Songs were the flags you hid your face behind. Your telegraphed semaphore blurring the lines, fast-forwarding in a falsetto whine, pause, skip, rewind, tongue-tied through the wires, desperate as only teenagers can be. Hear me pick me play click go only connect i miss them don't you sure now it's quick and clean no end of space no 90 minutes calculations and yes there's beauty even in downloaded data your memory banks decanted in an hourglass there's still the thought the careful lettering but no matter what it's just not really a party thing not a careful labor of love looped on a shoestring i miss that kind of love that fan dance of belonging Hard to see it go, to see the tapes you own, those stacks of lovers' gifts and bugger all to play them. The buzz, the fillers and those ridiculous dates. Mix 96, 99, 01, go on. Don't grieve for what you both believed. Play, go, fast forward, pause and see that single crooked heart on the sleeve. All of the lessons in in this short poem have stood me in good stead over the years and they've kind of, you know, helped me get through some difficult times. So while they may not all be relevant to you, I hope that some of them are. And this is basically the sum total of all of the knowledge that I've picked up in my 30 something years on this earth. It's very short and it's called How You Learn. Choose the second cheapest booze. It's probably less rough. Lipstick that's not red is not working hard enough. Add a little water when your onions start to burn. You know, you think of her when you do that, but this is how you learn. Dress codes in the Middle East, the Arabic for book. Eyes or lips, not both, though you like a bolder look. Anything can shift and change, everything can turn. Never date a mama's boy or girl, this is how you learn. Try not to act too try hard while eating somewhere glam. Tap water, please, the wine is fine, you think you'll have the lamb. When you're making coffee, see at the bottom of the urn, you know a guy I hated taught me that but this is how you learn. Rinse your hair in icy water. You are not a dancer. God is in the house, but she doesn't always answer. Keep on moving forward when you know you can't return. This journey is the only one, and this is how you learn. And this is a kind of companion piece. It's about really the joys of serendipity and spontaneity, which I know that a lot of us haven't had much of over the course of the past year. But it's also basically against planning. This is my defence as, as to why I don't plan. And it's called Against Bucket Lists. I don't like dolphins. I have no desire to bob around in a hot air balloon. An Everest? The nausea, the tea, the Sherpas, thanks, but no. Walks by the sea, fresh ground coffee, Billy Holiday. I like the joys you wouldn't brag about, and I prefer to witness them alone with no more fanfare than a quiet sigh. See, everything I've loved has been unplanned. I could have never engineered that look that swam over her face under the lights, that six-inch snow, the songs from open windows on hot Friday nights, the air awash with sex and promise, his breath on my neck. Her leg flung sweetly over mine in bed, the feel of my hand in my father's hand. Thanks, but I want to go to my grave surprised. I don't need to be ready or grateful. I don't even have a pen. My eyes are open, seeking the next thing while it's happening, not ticked and dated, lacquered in place like a dried butterfly while everything that's beautiful sails by. And you'll know me. You will know me because I'll be on the corner waiting. 
Thank you all very much. And that was my first set. And I'll now hand you back to Paul Burston. In terms of the, the, the other guest, we had uh, the lovely Polis as well, who I'd met previously at the Archway with Words Polari, which was terrific fun. And he and I reminisced about our days on the um, Edinburgh Fringe and receiving mad emails from promoters who have far less of a sense of boundaries than you do. Um, how did you discover Polis and uh, what's next for him at the moment? It was before the, the previous book came out, Disbanded Kingdom, which was entered for the Polari Prize and was on our, on our list. I, I can't remember how I... I think I, I think I possibly may have met him through social media or maybe through his, maybe through his publisher, actually, because um, prior to that, there was another author with the same publisher. I think it was through the publisher. And he works at Waterstones in Nottingham, and we went there on tour with Polari. So we've, we've, we've done an event together in Nottingham a couple of years ago. So that's, that's probably the, the connection there. Really, really interesting that we also had a, a bookseller on, on the call as well. And nice to see her photos of Polis's work on uh, social media. Um, but he has, he has a new book coming out soon, which he, he also read from, uh, which I look forward to, uh, to catching up with him about myself uh, later in the month. So, yeah, it was really nice, uh, really nice hearing from him and nice to have such, a, again, another diverse, both in terms of, you know, age backgrounds and, and thought sort of selection of people. Yes, and you know he, 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 he writes. His writing is is very much influenced by his background as a Cypriot. So that 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 that, that comes through in the writing and his you know the, the piece the piece. He read two. He read from the novel, which is coming out in July, and he also read from a short story, which is coming out in the uh, mainstream anthology um, in June. Um, both of which are set in Cyprus with, with Cypriot characters. And we're now going to go to Nottingham, where our next guest is residing. Polis, your debut novel, Disbanded Kingdom, was long listed for the Polari First Book Prize. What can we expect with your new book? What a setup! Um, <laughs> another long listing. No, um, <laughs> it's it's actually very different, kind of. Uh, it's still about the need for freedom and um, God and fate versus free will. Uh, it's called The Way It Breaks, and it's set in my motherland of Cyprus. And it's about a young man named Orestes who wants to better his life. His life changes uh, when he comes across and meets uh, a man who works as a male escort in the five-star hotels. Can you give us a, t- a taste of it, please? Yes, I can. So this, this is from near the beginning and Orestes is um, going to a, a bar with his friend Baddies. Baddies was partial to a bar off the radar. They left his car in a dim lot overseen by a toothless old man where he squatted to play with a litter of strays. Past the trendy spot around the Bandagolion, every establishment heaving with smoking, chatting, dressed up undergrads, They went into a cafe bar in one of those vast old houses with high wooden doors and a courtyard. Baris' choice for a coffee and a game of backgammon. In the light of bulbs draped over a pomegranate tree, Baris did multiple things at once. He smoked, sipped an ice-cold frappe, pushed his glasses up his nose, stroked another stray cat, and complained about neoliberalism without once taking his eyes off the game. He'd got first-class honours in classics from UCL, 
and could spout whole swathes of the Iliad as he scratched his beard. As a teenager, he'd needed Orestes to stand by his side to talk to girls. But now he'd forged his own path, and the awkwardness of youth had transformed into a state of manly tranquility. For the first time, Orestes felt the less attractive of the two. How's your sister? Leave my sister alone, Buddy said, in that priestly drone of a voice. How would I get to her? Isn't she in London? Manchester. She's fine doing her PhD. Serious? Watch what you're doing, Ram. Wiping the floor with you. Eh, you always win. Buddy shrugged, smoked, and lifted the frappe to his lips. He moved another chip. I saw Bavlos today, my cousin, in prison. No, you wanker, at the gym near the park. He's working there now. He said he could get me in for free. I figured I should go, you know, do some exercise, lose a bit of weight. Baris didn't take his eyes off the board. Good for you. Behind him was a painted figure stretching up the stone wall. Shadows fluttered over it, the paws of the cat spread to bat at Baris's fingers. If you want, there's a great spot to shoot some hoops. Orestes! The voice had come from behind him. He turned and Baris looked up from the game to see Evangelina Ioannidou heading towards them. Teetering on four-inch heels, her body looked as simultaneously big and tiny as it had at school. She buzzed, erratic, her perfume splashing everywhere. I can't believe it. When did I last see you? Where have you been? Eh, what else? Working. You? Where do you think, she said? The beach, the mall, the bar? How am I supposed to keep track? How are you doing? Fine, yeah. Remember Barry's? Oh my God, Barry's. I was standing there thinking, who is that Bin Laden over there? What's with the beard? Gripping their arms for balance, she bent at the waist to give each of them a peck near the cheek. Barry squirmed at her volume. What's new, Evangelina? Cut that Evangelina nonsense, she said. I'm Eva now. Haven't you seen my Facebook? You have to. It's a riot. I post selfies every day and I use those filters where you look like a painting or as if someone took it a hundred years ago. My mum says, Gori, what next? Iconography. You on the ceiling of the Hagia Sophia. Oop, hang on. Here, you dumbass. In the courtyard, come inside, then out, past the bar. Grabbing a chair from a nearby table, Eva sat herself down with caution. There was a tight black dress, bulging bust and fabric pulling thighs to negotiate. Her body was a full cup of coffee carried on a tray over people's heads. Though Orestes had felt a twinge of dread at seeing her, the feeling subsided. Eva liked him, or at least that's what he suspected, even after he became too poor to attend their school. More than once he'd fantasized about her. Of course, he never told the other guys. She was fat, they would mock him. Well, those same people would be laughing about him now, no matter what. So what if she's fat, his grandma used to say. With her dad's money, you could own a chain of hotels. The girl had a certain potency, a pull. And she made Orestes feel comfortable, desirable, even now. I'll leave it there, and you can find out what happens with Orestes and Eva later on. The the other piece is a short story. Um, 
And I don't, I don't tend to do many of those because I, I'm one of those freaks that finds novels a lot easier than short stories to write. <laughs> I mean, the short stories are really hard, especially in like in the UK. It's really common for them to be two thousand words or less. And normally, I like brevity in my writing. When I write a novel, like this is what three hundred pages, but I cut a lot of words. Like I do, I don't. I don't, I only ramble when I'm speaking. I don't ramble when I'm writing. Um, so I find short stories quite, uh, yeah, quite a challenge. But this one I wrote, I actually wrote it with the aim of submitting it to this. This was um, Incandescence, uh, they're a wonderful publisher. And they did a call out for um, stories for an anthology to uh, sort of highlight um, writers on the fringes, basically, so anybody who's marginalised. And this is called Pixmalium. The first post of his I see. He stands painted white against a brilliant blue, a sheet draped around his waist. His arms have been cut off, a digital trick. Along with the angles of his head and torso, it forms a clear nod. Anyone could see it. Venus de Milo. His caption beneath it. Venus as a boy. The image has thousands of likes, as it should. I found it on another account via the hashtag GayHot. I'm instantly drawn to his profile. The gallery is an Alexander's tomb of riches. Here is a living god with the soul of a muse. My comment on his post. Your wicked sense of humour suggests exciting sex. Without a moment's pause, I follow him. Pixmalian, he calls himself. I laugh, sipping my neat coffee and flicking the ash of my cigarette over the railing. Moments later, he likes my comment and follows back. A gesture he's returned to under a quarter of his fans. I limit myself to liking only three more of his previous hundred posts. My first uploaded pic, a photo of me with my daughter taken by her mother. On the veranda at the old house, it was Green Monday. You can see my Yamaha in the background under the grapevines. I could do with a ride on it now. My girl is on my lap wearing my sunglasses, which are far too big for her. Her leggings came off at some point during the meal. She has a master's now from LSE. There's a bowl of octopus on the table, which she wouldn't touch these days. I'm smoking and squinting at the camera, smile caught between discomfort and joy. The caption beneath it, my pride and joy. I use the hashtags Father's Day, Love, Dad, Gay Daddy. A smattering of likes and heart emojis. I wonder how she's doing in England. Pixmalian stories, behind-the-scenes videos, unknown hands massaging paint onto his pecs, his perfect teeth, smile nearing innocent. The fabric of his briefs turns see-through in the shower, a grin as the camera turns away. Outtakes, alternative versions of his pictures, hand up instead of down, head turned left instead of right, eyes to the lens, eyes to the side... Endless reposts of him shared by other accounts, each of those filled with semi-clad demigods. That familiar picture of his again and again, Venus as a boy. 
is most popular, it would seem. People are simple that way, proud of their limited knowledge. They fail to detect his layered nods to other myths, the beauty of his mind and eye. One story photo leaps out, the view from his flat. I recognize the neighborhood. So he lives in Athens. I ignore the preset reaction emojis, opting for the simple word, perfect. Then I add, Pygmalion himself would have admired Pygmalion. A few minutes later, my comment had a little heart beneath it. He liked it. My latest post, a day at the beach. I'm standing in my speedos, not bad for my age. A bit of a belly, but I'm clean shaven and sport a healthy tan. You can't see my eyes because I'm wearing a hat and sunglasses, but I look friendly, as if I've been caught mid-laugh. I've rested my phone against a eucalyptus and set a timer. Some likes and comments, mostly from middle-aged men, Greek, Cypriot, Lebanese, Iranian, Israeli. We all look alike, maybe that's why they want me. How how do you find writing about... Um scenes like that do you do you, do you... I, I basically i wrote a whole novel about gigolos and there's very <laughs> little sex in it <laughs> um uh, yeah i'm kind of um as patrick gale once said like, i'm a fan of the like slow fade to black um <laughs> I, I'm, yeah because i think sex can be like as hilarious as the guardian's bad sex award is Wait, was it The Guardians? It is, I think. Um, as hilarious as it is to read those entries, I do think reading about sex can be so cringy. It's really hard to get right. Um, and I think sometimes the less you say, like it just just a bit of a hint of something is, is a lot more effective than going into great poetic detail. I think as queer people, because we've been so told to constantly be ashamed of ourselves and there's so many extra pressures, when you when you are out and you kind of start to own who you are, there is a need to sort of show it and, and not be ashamed anymore. And it is a bit more direct with queer men, especially because, you know, men, men generally are... Uh, quite randy it's, it's a difficult area but i i'm i'm more for sex positivity and people being happy with themselves than doing the opposite and being too ashamed uh to live as as they are my next guest and i have something in common which is a personal connection to hastings and for any line of duty fans watching that's the town on the south coast not ted hastings um, <laughs> Tell me about Hastings. I love Hastings. I've still got quite a lot of family and friends there. Um, and I'm really longing to come home and see everyone. Um, and you get the best fish and chips. Yeah, I love it. I love it there. Can you give us an introduction to your your new book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death? It took about a decade to write. Um, it's uh, to do, to, to say really briefly, death is a, is a woman, death is a black woman. And death uh, makes friends with a young writer called Wolf. Um, and uh, Wolf decides they are going to write Mrs. Death's memoirs. And, uh, and it's about the budding friendship of, uh, between Wolf and Mrs. Death. Um, I suppose in a lazy way, I could probably say it's the way death teaches you to live or at least to live better. So the book's called Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And 
on the very first page, it says, uh, mourn the dead and fight like hell for the living, because that's pretty much the message of the book. The book starts with a disclaimer, because it occurred to me that when you write a book about death, that some people, everybody's got a very different idea of life and death and this and that and and people might write me snotty letters because I didn't get everyone in there are so many dead people I could write about um there's so many amazing lives lives of courage lives of great inspiration so it's very difficult to get that many people in such a <laughs> short book I mean the book would have been but the one sort of rule with writing this book was to make it as short and beautiful and concise as possible um, unlike this intro, sorry. Okay, so <laughs> so here's a little bit from the disclaimer. So the book starts boldly, just so we don't get our wires crossed. Disclaimer. This book contains dead people. This book cannot see the future. This book is dabbling in the past. This book is not about funerals, although funerals are mentioned. You do not have to wear black to read this work. You do not have to bring flowers. Caution. This work contains traces of eulogy. Warning. This work contains violent deaths. Spoiler alert. We will all die in the end. This book cannot change the ending or your ending or its own ending. This book does not know how to switch on the light at the end of the tunnel. This book cannot contact the other side. This book cannot speak to the dead or for the dead. This book will not confirm if there is an afterlife or an alternative universe. This book will not improve your karma. This book will not nag you to live a healthier life. This book will not help you quit smoking. This book is not going to urge you to age gracefully. This book does not advocate the use of the funereal phrase, he had a good innings. This book does not contain any person or persons clapping their hands and singing Come By Ya, My Lord. This book may be used for mild to moderate relief from grief, fear and pain. However, if symptoms persist, please buy a ticket to see a live reading of this work where you will find the others. Obviously, when I wrote that, I did not picture it would be in Zoom. Like, that's just crazy. Anyway, caution, do not exceed death. This work has a very high dead or death count. Take with caution. Take your time. Do your lifetime in your own lifetime. This work calls on the righteous spirits of all of our mighty ancestors now and in the hour of our need. We take a breath and look back in amazement and wonder at how our ancestors survived so we may also survive. We take another deep breath and we feel our hearts beating inside our bodies and we celebrate that that same empowerment and spirit that runs in our blood now and can be found in our DNA today. We give thanks to our ancestors. Thanks for giving us life, for being alive, to feel alive and to share this one magnificent connection to life and all living things. This book does not contain every person that has ever died. If you wish this book to have mentioned another death, we can only apologise now in advance for not knowing which death or dead celebrity you wanted mentioned and celebrated in this book at time of writing and printing. At time of writing, 
this book Mournful Prince, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, Toni Morrison and Aretha Franklin. And this book sincerely hopes there aren't any more inspirational human beings, bold souls, brave hearts and superheroes to add to that dead list before we go to print. Amen. Okay, so the book sort of starts like that. I won't read any more from the disclaimer because I quite like you to find that for yourself. Um, and I'll read just a little bit more. This is um, Mrs. Death speaking. So this is the first bit, bit. So this is Mrs. Death speaking. Mrs. Death's diaries. The first morning of the first morning. Present day. When I called for change, did you pass by me? Did you see me today? I sit on a bench outside London's King's Cross station. I like train stations and airports best. I like to sit in places where people come and go. I sit and watch you come and go. You say goodbye and hello. Come and go. Goodbye and hello. It's as though you are not connected to each other. Goodbye, you say, clinging on to that last glance. You give a funny little wave. You don't know that you don't have to touch, to touch, to see, to feel each other. Human beings were designed to be in contact without being in contact, to communicate without words, to call each other to each other's minds. Humans still have so much to learn about connection. But when you are in transition and whilst travelling, you are tuned into this. You are alive and alert. When you travel, you wake up. You're awake and aware of changes, differences and sameness, strangers and each other. In transit, you are occupied by time and space, by clocks and miles, by separation and reunion, your chance and your fate. Humans were built to travel. Humans were made to move, to share and to migrate, just like butterflies and birds. The history and the geography of human migration is nothing less than phenomenal. The greatest trick man played was making you believe I was a man. They erased me and made you all believe that death was male in spirit, the grim reaper in a black hood with a scythe. Remarkable that nobody questioned it really, don't you think? For surely only she who bears it, she who gave you life, can be she who has the power to take it. The one is she, and only she who is invisible can do the work of death. Sophia, you've also written both poetry and fiction. That's true. Uh, this is After My Own Heart, um, which is my debut and only novel. And I, I think this one must be my mistress, because um, that's that's kind of the way it fits into into the books as a whole. I cheated on, on poetry by uh, by writing this. Um, but th there, are, there is also, as, as with Selena's work, there are elements of poetry in it. Would you give us a taste of it? I will, absolutely. So this is After My Own Heart, available from uh, Limehouse Books and also the uh, big old conglomerates that we don't tend to mention by name. And it was based actually on a diary that I was keeping during one of the more difficult times in my life. The uh, Saturn Return 27 Club years meant to be really great. It was not. And uh, basically, I identify as a lesbian because that's the 
label that fits me I suppose I don't want to give up my otherness I'm proud of it I've known I was gay since I was 11 or 12 years old and that that's one of the things that this extract covers but I do also find men attractive and I did not actually sleep with one until I was in my late 20s I would like to point out that my mother is also on this call so if everyone would like to say <laughs> hello to Mrs Blackwell uh, she mom. knows about this Hi, mom. <laughs> um, so this is Evie aged about 12 Girls' voices break too. I never knew before it happened, but they do. The voice I knew, high as a flute, capable of switching smoothly between one register and another, left me by the time I was 12. Instead, what I had was something heavier and harder to predict, a foreshadowing of the deep, bluesy voice I'd end up with. I'd learned to love it, but at the time it just felt like everything else, uncontrollable. I wasn't a looker in those days. I had dull, tangled hair, tender new breasts pushing against my thin school sweaters and a tendency to trip in the hallways while dreaming of another life. I was a mess. My thighs rubbed, sweat circles bloomed under my arms and I bitterly resented all the girls around me who'd managed to hold on to their childhood bodies a little longer. I was still proud that I was the first girl in my class to get my period though my mother had wept. You're so bloody young, she kept repeating, before pulling it together and going to the corner shop for chocolate and nappy-thick sanitary pads. I had friends, other studious, slightly uncool girls, but my place in the school hierarchy was painfully low. My archenemy was a girl called Gina Lemon. As Lemon was playground slang for lesbian at the time, I took a lot of pleasure in her name, but I couldn't think of anything else about her that was flawed. Gina was skinny flat as a board, mousy hair pulled back, toffee smooth, narrow-thighed in her designer-labeled jeans. In the trailing skirts I stole from my mother, mirrored hippie blouses and knuckle-duster earrings, I scared the hell out of this anemic girl and she frightened me too, with her pinched lips and pale eyes that never missed a trick. Gina decided that I was a leather, which at least meant she was smarter than she looked. After she shared this insight with my class, they treated me like I had a communicable disease. We didn't really know what gayness was. I certainly didn't. All I knew was that I was already indefensibly other, and there's that word, with my woman's hips, foreign features, courtesy of mum's Eastern European and dad's Irish blood, my flannel shirts and velvet goth gowns. When I think about that girl, I know how frightened she was. I know she was much braver than I am now. I did have crushes on girls, but it wasn't a wildly sexual thing. I dreamed about closeness soft skin against mine, a wisp of perfume in the air. I lived every day in a haze of longing that I channeled into sneaking cookies out of the tin downstairs as I watched another snow-flecked video. I had a crush on my drama teacher. Odd when I think about it, she must be younger than I am now. One evening after school, she took us into the music hall to get a chance to sing. The other girls chose songs from the musicals, and you'd think I would too. Instead, I chose a song from one of my mother's blues albums, one we sang in the car together with the windows down. I wanted to make a statement. On the first verse, I could barely hear myself. On the second, something happened, another kind of vocal break, but a good one. Some people say they'd been touched by angels, or my angel was a fat, laughing, black-winged one with whiskey for perfume and grease on her chin. I had a voice big enough for cathedrals, dirty enough for brothels, and above all, loud. Within five minutes, I went from being a dumpy girl to a small goddess, and it wasn't about me anymore. My hair, my sweat, my temper, my dreams, it was something bigger than me. It was the closest to religion I'd ever get. 
wow, said the music teacher when I was done. I felt wrung out. I could just run a marathon or eat an 18-ounce steak or had an orgasm. The class was silent, all of them wearing the same surprised expression. I looked at Gina Lemon, saw the naked dislike on her face and grinned. Usually, she just ignored me. But if she hated me, I figured I must be somebody. We also talked a lot about um, our routines or lack or lack thereof. <laughs> I used to be a night person because I had the romantic notion that, you know, you should only write it by candlelight in your garret with a bottle of red wine, probably. It's that Moulin Rouge um, thing. Very, very Moulin Rouge. And then, you know, when I became a journalist, it quickly became apparent that I couldn't really work like that because it, it, that wasn't going to work, you know. And as I've got older, I've tended to be more of a morning person than a night person anyway, in general. And my head's usually clearer in the morning. So now I write first thing, usually, um, and then maybe go back to it later in the day. But I'm, I have the luxury of, of not having another job apart from the bits and pieces that I do. I'm, I'm my own boss, so I can sort of arrange my day around my writing schedule to suit myself. Many people don't have that luxury. I know people who get up very early in the morning to write before their kids are awake, you know. Um, mm. So I'm, I, I'm very privileged in that sense. But I think, I think well, however, however one does it and whatever your routine is, I think it's very important to have some kind of, if not a routine, then a goal or, or, or to set yourself certain targets, even if it's a simple thing like a word count, like, you know, this month I'm going to write X thousand words or this week I'm going to write X thousand words. Otherwise, it, otherwise things can just drift. I, I, I guess it's different with poetry because a, po- a poem, by its very nature, is going to be probably a lot shorter than a novel <laughs> in most cases. And short, even short form fiction, you know, you can, I mean, I've written short stories and you can usually write a short story over a couple of days and then redraft it and redraft it. Whereas a novel is probably going to be a year of your life. Um, and you need to break that down into bite-sized pieces or you end up writing solid... I mean, I, I, I do know people who do this. They, they, they're under contract to write a novel a year and they spend seven months of the year, eight months of the year, avoiding writing the novel and then they write it all in a mad rush. <laughs> and they do it really well. I just couldn't do that. I would be so full of anxiety about it. I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't be able to do anything. I have to, I, I have to break it down into achievable goals. And then aim to do so many words by X. I I have a sort of where I kind of I kind of break things down so that I have my kind of my writing time, which I kind of ring fence because that's the most important thing for me. And then I have sort of the other time, which is admin broadly, um, you know, planning events, organizing details to do with being a producer and liaising with artists, venues and so on for Polari. Um, or in this case, liaising with Zoom for Polari and getting online invitations sorted out, social media, all that kind of stuff. I kind of leave that to later in the day when I don't really need the brain, you know, because I, I don't function so well later. I tend to get a bit more bleh later on. So the morning is when I'm most focused. So I kind of, I try and knuckle down and do a, do a few hours writing first thing if I can it's not always possible of course sometimes you have to you have to work around things because you've got other commitments so but where possible I try and do that 
Being a writer is often a balance of extroversion and introversion. To finish off the show, Paul and Selena discussed where their heads were at at that point in lockdown, about how they felt about getting out into the world again and performing after lockdown. Selena spoke about the two sides of herself and about that question that's been plaguing most of us since this all started. What are we going to talk about when it all ends? What are your feelings about coming out of this and being back on stage? Yeah, same as you. Very mixed emotion. As you can actually tell by my hair, it's like I've kind of <laughs> I've always felt like a, I've kind of run two lives. There's like this bolshy blonde that kind of gets all the applause and is on stage, and then this brunette that does all the work. And the brunette is totally taking over. <laughs> like uh, I've just become really introverted and sort of dark. And this is the longest time I've been in this in this in this feeling. I kind of feel like I might go on stage and kind of go, ah, I don't know how to do it. I'm sure I'll I'll do a shot of tequila and I'll remember. But I'm really looking forward to seeing people again. But I also feel like I won't have anything to say. Well, clearly I will. (laughs) But (laughs) but, I mean, there's this thing, isn't there? What will you say? I mean, banana bread, sourdough, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what can I tell you? Oh, I got some new slippers, burnt all my bras. <laughs> so it's it's going to be very strange, but just I'm not in a, I'm not impatient, though. I'm happy for it to go nice and slow and everyone to be safe and, and, and to sort of also be gentle with people because you don't know what everyone's last 12 months, 18 months have been like. I mean, I've, I'm, I've been, you know, very good at, keeping my social media very sort of, you know, not really talking about what's going on in my private life. And well, it's been really hard. And I think for a lot of people it has been too. So sort of trying to hold that space and sort of give that love to people who might have even had it harder than or tougher. We don't know. So big love for all that. This is Sophia Blackwell, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Polari podcast. The next episode will focus on that heading out into the world and the cathartic show that we had at Heaven Nightclub on returning to some sort of normality in the spring. That episode will feature Joelle Taylor, Alexis Gregory, PJ Samuels and VG Lee, hosted, as always, by Paul Burston and recorded and edited by me. So that's something to look forward to. If you like the podcast, please do give it a nice rating on whatever platform that you listen to your podcasts on. And we will be back with you very soon. 